Hello and welcome back to episode 34 of Double Reel, the podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films and the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome James. Thank you very much for that one introduction. Regular listeners may still be adjusting to our all-new format where we release this month's issue of our podcast magazine in installments a week apart. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. You won't notice the difference, but it will all make a bit more sense to know that James is my son as well as the co-host of the pod. Last week, we brought you the first part, Double Reel Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases, and chat about how we're fitting film-watching into our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you will find reviews of new films Babylon, The Pale Blue Eye, and All Quiet on the Western Front, my look on David Cronenberg's Rabbit, and James's look at the Nick Cage classics, inverted commas, USS Indianapolis, and Trespass. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful if you could take a couple of minutes to leave a five-star review about us wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features, starting with Classics and Recommended, where we dip into our list of great films we haven't got round to seeing yet. For this episode, it's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Our hidden gem looks at lesser-known or underappreciated films that deserve a wider audience, which this month features Tony Scott's lesser-alone thriller, Deja Vu. Then it's the one that got away, and a look at a tall tale of projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 34, we look at the story of Jim McBride's Electra Assassin. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we discuss the 1993 version of The Three Musketeers. Next week it's The Big Conversation, where we discuss a topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. First we've got some messages from listeners about this month's features. Mike, friend of the pod, gets in touch about the remake Hate Watch. I actually really enjoyed the Sutherland Sheen version of The Three Musketeers. Uh, I think it's up there with the Ollie Reed, Michael York films. A great baddie and Tim Curry, and I recall the off-skin drinking was hardcore. We're going to have to agree to disagree on this one, Mike. Other comments on the remake? Gary says, I'm a Three Musketeers fan as well. Books, TV series, cartoons and movies. This is one of the worst adaptations. Uh, Taylor cool. says, it's terrible. It's just young guns with swords. Uh, Brian says, I can't disagree with any of the criticisms people make of this film, but I still like it. Which, okay. <laughs> On our classic Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Jerry says it's a great movie, but there are parts of it I found clunky and where the way character acted didn't make sense to me. Ezra says, loved it, one of the best films of that year. Ben says, good film, but in a story like that I need closure, so I was frustrated by all the unresolved threads at the end. On our one that got away, Electra Assassin, Lily says, wow, just wow, ninjas everywhere. And on our hidden gem, Deja Vu, Brian says, love this film. On my second viewing, I picked up on a lot of details I missed first time around. Ali says, completely unbelievable, but great fun nonetheless. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the pod. Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of interesting movies. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding things we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list, and you can make recommendations there or in all the usual places on our socials. This month we look at a multi-award winning film by Martin McDonough, which James did not get round to seeing due to his disappointment with McDonough's previous film. The classics and recommended feature for episode 34 is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. So, James, what, what's your history with Martin McDonough? Talk me through it, you know, uh, leading up to when uh, Three Billboards came out. 
Um, obviously, In Bruges is his best film by a country mile. His flag flagship film, I would call it, is um, an absolute work of art. I love it. And then I was very excited for Seven Psychopaths, and then that was awful. Um, so I was, I wasn't too keen or interested in going to see this. I had no desire to watch it because of how let down I was by Seven Psychopaths, and then it won about four million Oscars, um, including acting and all sorts. So, did that that change your mind at all when you saw the awards that it won, or, or did you think, well, you'd seen not, good reviews for Seven Psychopaths, and you just think, oh, maybe I'm just not on this guy's wavelength anymore? Not, not really. So I know that Frances McDormand is, you know, one of Hollywood's most celebrated actresses, and she's. You know, if she's in a film, she's more than likely going to win an Oscar or be nominated for one. Yeah. Um, but I've never been... Not, not that I'm not a fan, I've just never watched many of her films. Mm-hmm. I've seen Fargo and thought Fargo was okay, but I don't really like that many Joel and Ethan Coen films. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just... I didn't get around to seeing it. I just... I was I didn't really think the plot gripped me that much, you know? Mm-hmm. If you say, oh, it's a woman that puts up these billboards because her daughter was murdered... Okay. Do you know... Yeah, like for me that didn't that didn't draw me in. Yeah, but I know you pure loved it. Yeah, so I I went to see this uh, when it came out. Now I I missed Seven Psychopaths, frankly, because you told me how much you'd hated it and how it had been a big miss for you, and I just sort of went, oh okay. And I still haven't seen Seven Psychopaths. Maybe one of these days I'll catch up with it and see if I think differently to you. But I just went, oh okay. Look, you know, there's only so many films you can watch, and uh, that that sounds like a misfire. Um, it's kind of what w- one thing I read about it, which is quite damning, and it's the sort of thing that puts me off films. Which said someone was someone was trying and failing to be like Tarantino, and I, when someone says that, I just go, oh, do you know what I mean? It's like, well, if uh, I can probably see why you'd hate that, you know, well, you've got some of the same actors together, and you've tried that, and you just think, oh, Tarantino, not many people can do it quite the way he does it, you know. So whatever. But then Three Billboards came out, and I did find the storyline itself intriguing. Mm-hmm. It's based on a true story. Well, no, that, that's not quite right. It's inspired by a new story, by a real story, in that Martin McDonough saw the news headlines about a woman who'd done something very similar and said, okay, that's interesting, but rather than do a fictionalised film about that, he just took the, he took the basic premise and did his own story which I think is probably the right thing to do. Do you know what I mean? Because they'll always, they always sort of compromise the, the truth when they do those films. But taking it, taking it as an interesting start point for a story and doing his own story, it was like, okay, that, that, I think that's a good way of doing it. Let's go and see that. And I thought the main cast is excellent. Francis McDormand, Willie, Willie Harrelson, Sam Rockwell. I thought, okay, let's go, and, let's go and watch this. So I went to see it at the cinema and I really, really liked it. And having said that, I did think when I came to watch it again, I said, I wonder, I wonder how it will hold up, you know? Because sometimes... Films like that, especially Oscar-y films like that, they don't always kind of turn into films that you watch over and over again. I mean, history is littered with films that won Best Picture but you don't really watch ever again. Do you know what I mean? So I I went into it going, maybe this will be as good as last time, we'll see. Do you know? So... Once the film starts, what you what you thinking? How how does how does the opening of this film play out for you? What did you think of it all? Um, I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I didn't get the hype with this film. Yeah, I didn't think there was anything spectacular about it. I don't think it deserved all the best actress and best supporting actor awards it got. So when it came on, I'm obviously not gonna write off a film before it started. I've obviously got my 
reservations because of Seven Psychopaths. But when I thought, when it comes up, I think, okay, let's give this a chance. And I just, uh, yeah, I, nothing about it was particularly gripping for me. I'm not gonna lie, not for like from start to finish. I need a film to like start strong and then introduce what was going on, mm. and it just kind of felt like. And now she's going to speak to, um, is it Woody Harrelson she speaks to first or is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's Woody Harrelson speaks. And it's just a lot, it just felt like a lot of fucking talking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I did, I did find that it, that it worked for me. And I, I, I think the reason for that is I really do like Frances McDormand and I really liked her performance. I thought it was a very, it was a very subtle performance of a woman who's grieving. And, uh, I thought what was interesting was you, I, I was watching her and going, how much of this is that she's just a bit of a difficult person? Because you get people like that, don't you? Where you they're fundamentally a decent person, but a bit difficult, a bit chippy, a bit a bit tricky to live with, right? And before her daughter was killed, I think she was in an abusive marriage. So maybe that kind of affected how she was. But there's definitely an element of her being really, really closed off and really fucking hard to be around because she is grieving so much and she's got these unresolved feelings because her daughter's been killed and no one's been brought to justice for it. And I thought Frances McDormand portrayed all that very, very well. And I mm. thought, for me, I, I do get what you're saying, and this is the bit where I'm a little bit uncertain about how much I'm going to enjoy Banshees of Arnie Sherman when I eventually get around to watching that, is that he does just kind of have characters kind of talking and kind of working through things that are going on. But I, I did think this had... It did have it did have a narrative sort of driving it forward because Francis McDormand has done this thing which kicks off a reaction from the police. It kicks off a reaction from local people because she pisses a few people off, putting the um, the billboards up and saying you know what you know having a go at the the police and Woody Harrelson. I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because we find out relatively early on that he's 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 ill. He's struggling with cancer. So there are some residents of the town going that's a pretty shitty thing to do to kind of. You know, put up a billboard saying he's doing a shit job when he's wrestling with it, all, all that stuff, and then the the different ways that Sam Rockwell reacts to it and kind of reacts to her and like attacks the guy who's putting who's 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 put up the billboards at, at her request and and I thought it had enough forward momentum and incident to keep me going. I didn't. I thought the pacing was all right, um, but it is it is one of those films where it's a it's a meditation on grief, and if you're looking for a film that. It, that kind of just has a little bit more forward momentum in the story. It it, it doesn't have that, to be fair, does it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I enjoyed the performances. I mean, it's not my favourite Sam Rockwell performance, but I'm very glad he's won an Oscar. Do you know what I mean? I thought he was very good. Um, what did you think of the racial aspects of this of this film? Um, because people have commented on that. What did you think of it? There is some element of uh, the way certain certain. It's not the way the film treats black characters. It's the way certain act, certain characters in the story have treated or do treat black characters and how, how that shows up in the film. What, what did you think of that? Um, I didn't necessarily have a problem with it, but I didn't think it was entirely relevant to her daughter's death. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, like, uh, if this was going to be a film about police not doing anything about it because the character was black, then I would have understood it. And maybe we shouldn't have given this role to Frances McDormand and that would have given it a different dynamic if we'd given it to, like, you know, a black actress playing a, a grieving mother. So Yeah, because, I mean, what yeah, it is, is that, I mean, to, for people who haven't seen the film, I don't think this spoils the overall plot because it's background. In the background to this, Sam Rockwell plays a kind of idiot cop. He's, he's, he's 
a police officer in this small town because there's no one else, right? It, they don't have a big talent pool to choose from. And he's a fucking idiot, right? And he comes from a pretty kind of shitty, dysfunctional family, and he's clearly not the sharpest tool in the box. And at some point prior to the start of this story, he was in disciplinary trouble for beating up a black suspect. And that's about it. It's just a plot point. And there's an element of, like you say, I don't think it was necessary for this story, except maybe as an element of, it's like he and Francis McDormand hate each other so much, and he is obviously an asshole, and then goes and beats up somebody else in the story, don't want to give too much away. And then the conflict between those two escalate. The idea of there being any redemption for and between those characters, it's like you have to sympathise with Francis McDormand, even though she's a really kind of difficult person, and if you if you watch a film for two hours where the character is nothing but bad, it's like he's got to have some redemption. So it's almost to give him an arc. It's almost to give him something to get some redemption from. And I think probably people look back on it going, if you're going to use that just as a plot point, it's not going to come across that well. He could have just been an arsehole to beat up a suspect. He didn't have to be a black suspect. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but the thing is, like, why are you wanting to give someone like that a redemption arc? Like he's beating up a black suspect for no fucking reason. I mean, what? What? I just find I, I think Martin McDonough is grossly overrated. I don't. I think he can. He can. He, in, the, in the eyes of his fans, he can do no wrong with any, with anything he writes. Like for the, for that to make sense for for it to make sense, him beating up a black suspect and being a fucking stupid cop, that should have been the plot point of the story. It should have been to do with a black mother trying to get people to listen to her. And yeah, nothing to do with that. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think that's probably a fair criticism. I, I think it would have been better if this, if the, if the background had just been he beat up a suspect, right? Because yeah. you, you introduce the racial side to it, and then don't even talk about it again. It does feel like you're not treating it with the appropriate respect. And I, I think what what they're trying to do is again, I, I don't want to give too much plot away, but there, there there are Woody Harrelson's sheriff character. I really liked him. I thought Woody Harrelson was the best thing in the film because I thought he was really good. Because on the one hand he's struggling with Francis McDormand putting him under pressure but on the other hand he's you know he I thought the way he related to all the other characters was really really good um he has tried to kind of reach out to Sam Rockwell and say to him I think deep down you're a good man and and could be a good cop and try and do better I believe you can do better and I think Sam Rockwell for reasons that occur in the story is trying to live up to that but it I'm talking myself talk, talking myself out of liking this film, you know, because I still enjoyed it. I don't think I enjoyed it as much as I did the first time, and I still, but I did still enjoy it. But as when you pick it apart, it's a bit like it, he's trying to make up for what he did, but it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a theatrical contrivance that's making him do that rather than him trying to do a better job, you know. Sorry, that was Max tail heading off the wall. I don't know if you heard that. Yeah, I heard it. Don't worry. Sorry, I don't know if that'll cancel it. The fucking well, it, the it's, background noise. it's all right. I, I, th- I think I think having a canine audience is is a fun little quirk to the podcast. So we can leave that in. The thing is, Max <laughs> Tail's obviously a Labrador and Golden Retriever tail. But what yeah. we're finding is is that he loves his sleep so much that he gets excited about sleeping, and his tail he'll be, he lies on top of the couch, and his tail just hits the uh, hits the wall while he's yeah, sleeping. Yeah. He just goes. Yeah, <laughs> his tail is basically a weapon of mass destruction. Oh, uh, man! Yeah, he managed to hit. Um, a bowl of milk over the other day with his tail. Yeah, which yeah. Is worrying and incredible at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. I mean, so 
I, I mean, I do think that Woody Harrelson is very much the best thing in the film. And I think with Sam Rockwell's character, I think they're a little bit lucky they've got someone as good as Sam Rockwell playing that character. Um, I had enough goodwill towards the film with those three actors that I was prepared to go along with it. But I, I do think that part of the film was flawed. Um, it's not the weakest link in the film. The weakest link of the film was Abby Cornish. I thought that was a very poorly drawn character. The wife of Woody Harrelson doesn't really do much. Um, it is really about those three people. It is about Francis McDormand, Woody Harrelson, and Sam Rockwell, and how they how their stories play out. I mean, I, I still enjoyed it. I would say that Martin McDonough is Martin McDonough is more of a writer than a director. I think. You know, he's obviously directing his own stuff, but he does strike me as the kind of person whose scripts might play out a bit better in someone else's hands. Do you know what I mean? Yes, 100%. Um, because a director comes in. I mean, even someone like, you know, I've talked about John Carpenter. Even even John Carpenter, who didn't often get co- like writing credit for his for the films that he did. Sometimes he, he was credited as a writer on the script and sometimes he wasn't. But every script was polished by him as a director going, this is how, how it's going to have to work for pacing, this is how I think these scenes should be. And uh, it was really good. We were talking about his version of, of Firestarter, which should have, could have been made. The writer gave this really good account of, he gave his script to John Carpenter and like more than 90% of what he'd written was still in the script when John Carpenter was finished. So it wasn't like a complete rewrite, but it was just so much tighter and more polished, you know? And I think McDonough is the sort of person who would probably benefit from a, a film director doing that with his stuff. But I don't think he's ever going to do that because he's gaining a lot of, of commercial success and awards recognition for directing his, his own stuff. So I don't think he's going to change that. But I think he's a little bit in the um, the Charlie Kaufman, um, Aaron Sorkin box where he's, uh, he's not the best director to direct what he's written. Um, so I, I, I started out really liking this film and I'm getting a bit lukewarm on it. I, I did still enjoy it. And I, 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 there were some things about it that I did find very powerful and enjoyable, but it's, I don't think in the long run this film is going to live super long in the, mer- in the memory, actually. I think it was interesting to watch it and it was like it's just... It's faded a little bit since I watched it four or five... Well, five or six years ago and I, I don't think in 10 years' time it's going to be on, the, on, on any list of all-time greats, is it? No, I don't think so. But that's just me. Yeah, I mean, I liked it more than you, but even I can see that it's 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 held up okay and it's got some good things in it. But I think people will look back on this year and probably call something else the best film of the year. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month's feature is a somewhat forgotten part of Tony Scott's experimental final decade of his career, which I think deserves to be reassessed for its technical and historical importance. The hidden gem for episode 34 is Deja Vu. So James, what's your history of this film? Did you see it when it came out? Were you aware of it or... The Deja Vu not come out when I was like 10. Something like that, yeah. So I don't think it would have been for me back then. But I remember, I remember the, um, for some reason I remember the um, poster. I don't know if it was like advertised on like one of the films. Say it was Harry Potter and one of those films and it was like advertised on the adverts before that. Do you know what I mean? Or, 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 it, or, it's, or it's a poster on the on the wall when you're going to see something, something else like in that, the pictures, yeah. yeah. It is quite a striking um, poster. It's sort of got this kind of soft focus look at Denzel Washington that makes you think, oh, what's all that about? It's quite it's quite a good movie poster, actually. 
and I yeah, couldn't, and I, um, I couldn't, I couldn't, te- I couldn't tell exactly why it's a good movie poster, but it is. Um, so yeah, I didn't know, didn't know much about it apart from the fact that obviously Denzel Washington's in it. Yeah, but I didn't even know who Denzel Washington was when I was, you know, that age. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, since all of that, have you? Uh, did you ever catch up with the film before this, or? No, I watched it for this pod. That was the first time I'd seen it. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so obviously, you've seen some of the other films that Tony Scott has done with Denzel Washington. Um, presumably, you've seen Crimson Tide. Uh, once a very long time ago. Oh, you should watch that again. That's one. Of, that's probably the best submarine film ever made. Um, apart from Das Boot, it's probably the best English language submarine film ever made. Um, what about the Hunt for Red October? It's better than with Hunt that. Fa- with that famous Russian accent. <laughs> it's definitely better than the Hunt for Red October, and it's got <laughs> and it's got a great Hans Zimmer score, by the way. Um, have you 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 obviously Man on Fire? Um, uh, yes. And have you seen Unstoppable, the thing he did with Chris Pine about the runaway train? No, I haven't given much time to that film. Okay, and is it, and, is it good? Yeah, it's not bad actually. And and Taking of Pelham One Two Three, the 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 one he did with the, the remake with John Travolta. Um, no, I haven't. I've, I've heard it's okay, but I'm not the biggest John Travolta fan. He he is very marmite. There, are, I mean, he's one of those people that if you can't physically put up with him being on screen, it doesn't matter how good he is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it's just that guy. <laughs> so obviously, Denzel Washington uh, had great success with Tony Scott and Crimson Tide, which is a big Jerry Bruckheimer blockbuster. And, and and after Training Day, Denzel Washington can do whatever he wants, and he sort of was balancing his career between like big blockbusters because it was almost like uh, he felt this responsibility to be if you're the biggest black actor you've got to go and be the biggest black actor do you know what I mean you've got to be in successful yeah. films you, you you know otherwise you know you're not representing you know you're not you know so, you've got to keep that door open so other black actors can get a chance to walk through it and I think he's probably under less pressure to be that guy now but I think he definitely was trying to continue to be this flagship big actor and trying to do more kind of awards worthy kind of you know serious drama and stuff like that but he really liked working with um with tony scott and he always go back and work with tony scott on a movie um one would argue that it's you i i look back and wonder what maybe why he um he didn't do enemy of the state with uh, with tony scott because he'd have been just as good if not better than will smith in that movie um but by the by he comes back he does deja vu it's another jerry Bruckheimer film it's it's interesting. It's weird for me to describe the hidden gem, right? Because it did 180 million at the box office and generally got good reviews, right? So it's not like it was a flop or anything. But it's just like it's a it's a big Jerry Bruckheimer film, right? It's a Tony Scott film and it's a Denzel Washington film. People don't mention it that much. I I, I mean, having watched it, can you can you imagine why people don't think of this film very much? Do, do you have any thoughts as to why this would be um, just a little bit lost to time? Yeah, I don't know. Was two thousand and six a particularly big year for films? That this just kind of got lost and all of that. I don't Do you remember. Know. I don't actually remember two thousand and six's films being that. Uh, the Prestige you know. came out, um, but that's obviously in a very different kind of space. Um, that you know, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't fighting for attention against you know uh, many superhero films. The Departed came out that year. Inside Man. Uh, we talked about Apocalypto, which we've done recently. Um, the first Da Vinci Code film came out. Three hundred. So maybe came that's out. maybe that's why it kind of got lost in all of that because yes, yeah. those sort of a uh, three hundred, you know, was a massive um, yeah. success. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the the, the, the 
This film is it's also a bit quirky for a Bruckheimer film and a Tony Scott film because while it is you know an action film and a thriller film and Tony Scott is doing a lot of his kind of interesting stuff where for the last 10 years of his career he was trying to do different things with cameras and lighting and everything else really mixing things up it is still a Bruckheimer blockbuster where you know you've got action and drama and and got to keep people on the edge of the seat all of that stuff but it's got this quite quirky storyline to it to say that someone has found the ability to on on a very limited scale inf- or see back in time and even sort of send a little bit of information back in time to kind of influence something that's happened in the past and they're trying to detect something or leave a clue for somebody to try and rather than just investigate this horrible crime they actually want to see if they can stop it happening or Denzel Washington does anyway because hundreds of people have been murdered on a ferry in New Orleans and it's it's just a little bit more sci-fi than you'd expect in a Jerry Bruckheimer behind the film, isn't it? What did you think of the basic premise? Um, yeah, it's, I think it did quite a good job of explaining something that can get quite complicated, like as with anything, like not sort of time travel, but sort of not. It's anything to do with like that can be quite hard to explain. And when it's a new kind of idea for a film, you've mm-hmm. got to do a good job of explaining it. And I think it did. Do quite well. I didn't find that too hard to follow. Yeah, I think it did quite a nice job because it kind of gave you little tidbits at a time, didn't it? It kind of said, "Look, yeah, y- y- look." Washington is hugely overqualified to make this film, right? Obviously, okay, but he likes working with Tony Scott. And if you get, and if Tony, if Denzel Washington is available, why wouldn't you have him as the centre of this film? But he does give this like a solid authority. He's very good at making things believable and credible. And he, the the way that the way it works, it's quite it's quite an intelligent script. It's definitely more intelligent than the average Bruckheimer script. And I say that as somebody likes Jerry Bruckheimer films on the whole, right? But they tend to be pretty simplistic normally. This is quite clever. But what it does is it goes, here's a little bit of information that suggests that this federal agency is doing something a bit different. Here's a little bit more information that says, oh, hang on, where have they got this CCTV footage from? How can they can see so much? And bit by bit, you go, oh right, they've got. Uh, something different going on here do you know what I mean and by the time without too many spoilers Denzel Washington tries to stretch the capabilities of this um, uh, technology to breaking point at risk to himself and at risk to everything because he wants to do more than just catch one guy there's a there's a there's a woman he wants to save because he's kind of um, uh, feels like responsible and feels really feels responsible to something that happened to his partner who was investigating as well and by the time he's doing that, the really kind of preposterous bit, because time travel is all bollocks, right? By the yeah. time you're doing it, it's like source code or something. By the time they actually say this is what's happening, you go, no, no, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go along with this. I was prepared to go along with it because I thought they'd done a nice job of leading you on a bit of a breadcrumb trail to that point. Um, yeah, it's it's like kind of like little tidbits to kind of yeah. just... Yeah. And what did you... What did you think of how this film looked? Because it's a very interesting time. This is New Orleans in 2006. And this is why I said it's historical importance, because this is New Orleans while it's being reconstructed from Hurricane Katrina. And I don't think you're going to get New Orleans to look like that before or after this film gets made. Because a couple of years before, New Orleans doesn't look like this because it looks like whole, undamaged New Orleans, right? And New Orleans now has been, for the most part, rebuilt. But at this moment, they went. Actually, we're going to show you New Orleans in the in the wake of Katrina, and I thought it was very interesting that they sh- you see the city in a state you'll never see again. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, I think they did. That it was a really good choice for them to to film at that time. You got. I, I remember the first kind of few minutes in the film. You get this idea of how hot, mm-hmm. like that the atmosphere is like. It's just like I don't know. I, I just thought I thought it was really good the way they conveyed that. Yeah, yeah. I I I do too. And the other thing is, is that they also do some stuff at the beginning because the 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 film starts with the ferry explosion, a terrorist's bomb in inside a jeep blows up the ferry with hundreds of people on board who are killed you know servicemen like a lot lots of lots of sailors lots of people from the navy look like um and a, you know a, a jazz jazz band playing families and, and a little girl drops her doll off the side of the boat and you watch it drop and you think oh well you're going to come back to that because in the story they're going back over the things that they've seen so you know when they when you start to see that again because they're going back over the you know they've got the ability to see back in time and see what's going on and you start to see the stuff happening again they they did enough at the beginning to plant some seeds which always immediately call back when you see them again which i thought they did very well um from from a technical point of view you probably you, you haven't grown up with tony scott the way i have but tony scott of the top gun era and beverly hills cop 2 era he was famous for a certain glossy 80s look which he did better than anybody else and he perfected and then he went into his Bruckheimer like 90s blockbuster phase like Enemy of the State and Crimson Tide and in the 2000s he comes up with this completely new look now I remember you did said something very interesting about Man on Fire mate you said that it, it was it was it I think someone was going to do a Bollywood remake of, of Man on Fire and you said it's already directed like a Bollywood film it's so over the top yeah <laughs> In terms of stylized direction and color and editing and everything, did you find this is kind of on the edge of kind of like almost like technical madness as Man on Fire, or, or did you think it was a bit more mainstream than that? Um, yeah, I think it was somewhere in between. You know what I mean? Like not too crazy. Yeah. Um, but I did, I did find it interesting the way that they kind of presented it. Yeah, you know what I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I liked what he did. He, he's 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 perfect. He perfected this style, which his brother Ridley does a little bit as well nowadays, but not as not as mad. Where he's record, he's filming with multiple cameras, and each camera seems to have different lighting on it, and some are overhead, some are handheld, so he can show you the same s- scene from multiple angles. From a filming point of view, he's doing that because he likes to in the editing room. He likes to go, "Oh, that's the shot I want." For this film, I thought it quite worked quite well because the whole story revolves around seeing the same scene again, but from a different angle and going, oh, we missed something. So his style worked really well for that. And some of the colours, there was kind of the smeary kind of colours that you see, especially when he starts to kind of play with the time, the inverted commas time machine. I thought look, that, that looked really nice. And I think it was... Um, I thought it was really interesting that he was taking all that stuff that he did like to just a really mad way with Man on Fire and he kind of did it in a slightly more streamlined way for his Bruckheimer film. Do you know what I mean? He went, okay, Bruckheimer's not going to let me be, be as bonkers as Man on Fire was, but I'm going to bring in some of this just, just to give it a different look. Yeah. And obviously the central central bit of this film, the bit that's kind of makes it quite notable in a lot of ways, is there's a very innovative car chase in the middle of it. Now, for people who haven't seen the film, the idea is, is that with this headset on, you can see the footage of what happened three days ago, two days ago. So you can be driving along following the bad guy doing what he's doing, but you have to be driving along the road that he was on. So three days on, you're going down the same road in different conditions and you've got a headset on. So you're trying to 
you're trying to follow his route three days ago and see what he was doing to give you a clue to how he committed the crime. But you've got to deal with today's traffic conditions and, and cars and everything while you're doing it. So Denzel Washington's got this headset on. He's trying to look with one eye. He's trying not to crash into traffic while he drives along following... It's like it's a car chase three days apart. And I thought it was very interesting the way he filmed that. What did you think of that? Yeah, mental. That is quite a mental... Like, when you tell someone that's the kind of premise of that scene, you go, what? Um, But yeah, I thought... I wouldn't say that Tony Scott is, like, a masterful director, but I think he does know how to, like... He does know how to film, like, action sequences, doesn't he? He's very good at that. And he knows how to kind of build that kind of tension by you know, setting that kind of premise and the kind of upping the stakes of it all. So Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, I, I thought it was very interesting. And interesting enough, I was reading somewhere that um, uh, Tony Scott thought he'd only did a, did a sort of a bit of a mediocre job of that car chase. And I thought it was excellent. I thought it was absolutely superb and nothing like it has ever been done. But um, yeah, it was genuinely very interesting. I mean, for me, it's full of plot holes because it's, it's about time dilation or time travel and all of that stuff is always full of plot holes because it doesn't make sense. Um what did you think of the film overall? Did you did you like it? Did you enjoy it? Um, yeah, it was good. It was nothing spectacular, but you know, you're looking for a bit of a mental film, and you you know, you're not in the mood for a TV show. You just want to stick something on, then yeah, crack on with that. Yeah, yeah, ge- yeah. Generally speaking, you know, I think it's not top draw Tony Scott because his defining films from his eighties heyday are Beverly Hills Cop two and 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 Top Gun. Maybe his true romances were for. It's probably his best film, and he did a really good Tarantino film. It's a strange film because it's totally a Tarantino film, totally a Tony Scott film at the same time, and I love it. Crimson Tide's his best like blockbuster. Man on Fire is the best example of him going like bonkers in, in, in the 2000s. But it is more intelligent than your average blockbuster, I think, and I do like the balance that it strikes between action, plot, and an emotional heart, you know, and... All the people involved in making the film, like I said, are completely overqualified for the story, but it's good watching. It's always enjoy watching Denzel Washington work, right? Um, and obviously seeing New Orleans at that, at that time. It does feel a little bit like he was building up to something with these films that he did that, you know, Unstoppable's really good, you know, as a, but, but just a block, you know, just, just a thriller film. It, it, it doesn't feel like that was his. These were his. Should have been his final films. Do you know what I mean? It feels like he was building up to something that we never got to see. You know. I'd have liked to seen what he did. He did later on. There was something that he was going to do. We've talked about films that that he tried to do but were cut short before, like um, Potsdamer Platz. But I found out something when I was reading up about this film. I don't know what you think about this. Um, a, a, a film called Narco Sub which is about a submarine that's being used uh, to transport drugs and how it's, uh, it gets attacked. And that would have been his like going full-on mad, mad of a fire action, but with a submarine. I'd have really interested to see what he would have done with that. Um, but we'll, we'll never get to see. So it's kind of like, I look back on these films of Tony Scott's era and I just wonder a little bit where he would have taken this, this style of it, you know? Yeah, it is. I think... If you just take it for what it is, I don't think you need to think too much about what could have been with it. You know what I mean? I think they, they made a film and it could have been hit or miss. And I think they did a good job to make it a hit and not a miss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think I don't think you need to be interested in any of the wider context. I think you can just enjoy this film for what it is, to be fair, yeah. But yeah, I mean, a good one. I think this is uh, this is not the, the greatest film of all time, but I think this is a very interesting little thriller. Then if you like a bit of Tony Scott, I would recommend this, wouldn't you, mate? Yeah. Very good.
Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at how, long before the current cycle of Marvel films, one of its most highly rated graphic novels was nearly made by one of American cinema's most original directors. The one that got away for episode 34 is Jim McBride's Electra Assassin. So, James, your history with uh, Electra, the uh, the Marvel character. I mean, you're not really a comic reader, are you? But I mean, you've seen you've seen De- the the Daredevil film, the Daredevil TV series. So you're aware of who Electra is, right? Yeah, Daredevil's love interest with the mad sword they hanged. Yeah, what do you think of her Me. as a character? Meh. Yeah. Meh. And like meh. Like. Is that, do you think, is that because of the way she's been portrayed on screen, or do you just think fundamentally it's not a character that you can get that excited about? I don't even think it's, it's that. I think, I don't know, I, just, I feel like when they make female comic book characters, they have to make them a little bit more interesting than just fits into some spandex and can twirl about these knives. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's that's what would have been interesting if they'd if they'd explored Electra a little bit more because what we've had so far is while I thought the Daredevil TV series was very good, Electra was just like a half 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 hero, half villain kind of character to make things interesting, not really done in her own right. And obviously, the Daredevil film with Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner was an absolute shambles, and the Electra film that they did that was a spin-off was even worse. So I don't feel like she's been given a fair go on the screen, shall we say. Having, yeah. having said that, she's a bit Black Widow, she's a bit Catwoman, she's a bit familiar to all of those other characters a bit, isn't she? Yeah, I suppose so. You could... So the, the background to all of this is that um, you've heard of Frank Miller, Sin City and all of that. He's the yeah. guy whose graphic novel 300 got turned into a film and all that sort of thing. He he made a bit of a name for himself, especially in the 80s, uh, by similar to someone like Alan Moore, by going to work with people like DC and Marvel, taking characters or storylines that were already established, but doing them in a new and fresh way that people really loved. His version of The Dark Knight Returns, about an aging Batman coming back to kind of fight one last battle, is hugely influential on Christopher Nolan. Um, for better for worse, I think it influenced Zack Snyder as well. But it's one of the, the leading sort of Batman comic storylines of the 80s. Um, he followed that up by, he did a lot of stuff with Daredevil as well. He's one of, he's one of the people who really brought Daredevil to like proper prominence uh, for Marvel. And he, he helped create the Elektra character. Um, and in although she's occasionally love and interest to Daredevil, she's occasionally an ally, occasionally an antagonist, and sometimes an out and out villain. More so than Catwoman or, or Black Widow, she's you know she's one of these people that's been maybe similar to Black Widow because she's been brainwashed and taken over by this kind of supernatural kind of ninja like force that makes her an absolute kind of potential liability. Because even when she's fighting on the side of good, it can all get really. Like um, it can all go to pot because she's like a, a damaged ex brainwashed character with links to all of this bad stuff. So she got quite popular in a few Daredevil storylines, and then and then Frank Miller decided to give her a follow up, which is a it gives her origin story in flashback, but very inventively. She's kind of broken. She's on the edge of sanity. 
she had a very sort of dangerous sort of abusive uh, upbringing as a child she's then taken in and brainwashed into an assassin she gets trained by an evil evil secret society of occult ninjas called the hand who then show up in daredevil and stuff later but in this storyline the hand who are an evil evil sort of evil secret society of ninjas with supernatural powers they are behind an evil plot to control a politician and bring about nuclear war their leader is a supernatural being called the Beast, who's taken over a po- the politician based with mind control and turned him into a kind of dangerous populist figure who gains popular support with meaningless slogans, but has a sinister secret agenda, which sounds familiar these days. Um, huh. Electra decides to take on the Hand, but her methods are very ruthless. She's not like the kind of hero who kind of catches the bad guys and like hangs them off a lamppost for the authorities to catch. She's fucking killing people, right? She's chopping off heads with that sword, okay? And she also has a very kind of checkered history of the criminal past. So she gets on the wrong side of the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. who are trying to capture her. S.H.I.E.L.D. can't be convinced that there's a bigger enemy than her right now. So she's trying to stop the hand fucking destroying everything, but also trying to stop being captured by S.H.I.E.L.D. So you've got this kind of three-way battle. The whole thing is bonkers, right? Very popular at the time. Animated in a very interesting way on, on the screen. And... In the early 90s, they were trying to make a movie of this. Oliver Stone wanted to direct it. He was keen on the way the story has the satirical take on American politics, violence in the media. You know, it, the whole thing has a slight satirical look of like how like female superheroes are portrayed in skimpy costumes and stuff. And also, there's lots of ninjas and R-rated violence. So that could have been really interesting. I mean, it, it, what I've just described to you, is, is that something that you would watch? Full-on yeah. R-rated like, fighting ninjas? Yeah, that sounds funky. That sounds pretty good. Ninjas are an interesting kind of concept in the films because I think ninjas are absolutely awesome, but the vast majority of films about ninjas tend to be shit. So it would be interesting to see someone like Oliver Stone doing that. Um, the problem, the reason why this film didn't get made came down to the, the uh, to copyright and the rights issues. Um, the studio behind... Because at this time you'll be aware that like all the it's not like now where all the MCU stuff is... Apart from Spider-Man, it's all owned by the MCU, right? By Marvel Films. And Spider-Man is, although it's owned by another studio, they've kind of got their agreement that Spider-Man will work in a way that's consistent with the rest of Marvel. Back then, they basically yeah. sold off different characters. There's a Spider-Man, there's, you know, they'd done a bit of this and a bit of that. Marvel, you know, Blade was on its way, but there wasn't a single kind of control of this. So New Line Cinema, the studio behind this, they had the rights to the Daredevil and Electra characters, but not S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D. was owned by Fox. So they had to try, and if they were going to do this, they couldn't have S.H.I.E.L.D. in the film. They just had to have Electra versus the Hand, which is fine. I think you can do without the S.H.I.E.L.D., but it did mean that it's just a little bit more complicated to do the whole story that Frank Miller wrote. The other thing that was a bit weird about this is that Oliver Stone wanted to take a professional volleyball player turned actress, Gabrielle Reese and make her the lead, the lead as, uh, as uh, Electra. I'm not convinced by that. I know it's only Electra, but I, I don't think non-professional actors can carry a film like this. Um, but anyway, while it was taking a while to get off the ground, Oliver Stone lost interest and went off and did Natural Born Killers. But the reason why this is Jim McBride's Electra Assassin is that Jim McBride was also a film director. He, 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 he was a scriptwriter, but he also directed. And I think he'd have been really interesting because he was a Marvel fan. He introduced, he had like lots of references to Silver Surfer in his film of Breathless which Tarantino was a big fan of, by the way. 
And he did a couple of quite interesting films. It would have been interesting to see what he would have done with it. I'm not sure if he's an action director, but I would have liked to see what he would have done with this because he had a real feel for the material. Um, I mean, do you think a film like this could have been done in the 90s, though? I mean, you're not quite like you're not quite there with like the, the CGI and the special effects, but do you think you could do something like this back then? No, I think we would have to do something like that now. Yeah. Just because you can polish the action pieces a little bit more. Um I think I think that's the problem is that nowadays we have such much more like there's so many ways to make a film look good. We have much better technology to make these films mm-hmm. look polished and I feel like if you're making this film back then it wouldn't look as good. Yeah. I mean, the, the other reason it didn't go down, it didn't get made in the end, it, I mean, all of a sudden lost interest, but I think the other reason they might have had a bit of a problem with this is that Elektra's not a top-line character. Marvel's not a thing in films then as much as it is now, but people have heard of Spider-Man. People have heard of Captain America. People have heard of, you know, the, the X-Men and stuff. Um, but they haven't heard of any of these supporting characters. Whereas now, if someone says, oh, there's another Marvel character they're making into a film, people will go, Okay, well, I'll see if that's any good, right? Whereas back then, you go, who the fuck's Electra? Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure Daredevil <laughs> was that big back then. Do you know what I mean? So they probably needed the MCU to be more up and running or a successful initial Daredevil film before they could do Electra. Do you know what I mean? And that's yeah. that. That's what ended up happening, although badly, is that they did the Daredevil film and then followed up with Electra. The problem is the Daredevil film ended up being totally compromised. It wasn't very good. And then when they when they did Electra, they did it on a tiny budget. The whole thing was very cut rate. I mean, what do you think of Jennifer Garner as Electra? Do you think she was right for the part? I think Jennifer Garner is actually quite a good actress, and I think she could have done a good job of it. But I think the film was just such a hot mess that she never got a chance. Yeah. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, I mean, some people say, oh, Electra's meant to be at least half Greek and Jennifer Garner looks like an Irish-American. She's got red hair and everything. That's a bit of a not quite right. But they could have dyed her hair black and I think she'd have been absolutely fine. Um, but yeah, I think... I'd like to have seen this made. I mean, I had an interesting thing about how, how, how you could do this. I mean, if you want to get an idea of what the film would have been like, you can watch the Electra film with Jennifer Garner, but it's fucking shit. You can watch the Ben Affleck Daredevil but it's not great. The director's cut is better than what you saw in the cinema, but it's still bleh. the director's nothing special. Do you know what I would like to have seen if someone was going to do Electra, right? I'd like to have seen Tarantino do it instead of Kill Bill. Oofed. Then it would definitely been R-rated. Yeah, full, yeah, full-on R-rated violent film, but sword-wielding character with like a damaged past who's an assassin but taking on like the evil kind of shadowy people. You know, plenty of martial arts to do it. I, I would, I would like to see. Some people love Kill Bill. I don't. I'd like to see Tarantino do this instead of Kill Bill. That's my pitch for doing this, for for what what an electric film could have been. Ooh, and still, and still with Jennifer Garner. I mean, she'd be in the right age. You know, two thousand three, two thousand and four. That's basically when they did the uh, the Daredevil film, an electric film. So that that's what I would have liked to have seen. And you know, uh, Tarantino picked this up, Electra Assassin. Full on mental fucking ninjas and blood and and weird shit with politicians. Um, I think Tarant, I think Tarantino could have done a nice job with this, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll never know. If if they're, if they're going to resurrect Electra now, it's going to be when they they're carrying on the Daredevil TV series. So we might see Electra now. I'm not sure if we're ever going to get another standalone Electra story. Yeah, it doesn't. Say, I think that that kind of ship is sailed. I don't. Really, yeah, it's weird with the the kind of 
not death of Marvel, but the downturn in Marvel's quality of films, and then DC being shit, you do wonder where films are going to go, because nobody really gives a shit about Star Wars films anymore, after how disastrous the sequels were. Yeah. And then the same with Marvel. You just, you don't really know where they're going to go, do you? No. No. Yeah, I mean, it, it is what it is. I mean, the only thing with Electra is there is like a, a place for that sort of more edgy, kind of R-rated version of the, the superhero film. I mean, I think Blade, when Blade came out in the 90s, that was genuinely really good. I think the, the quality of the sequels is variable, but Wesley Snipes as Blade in a violent, sword-wielding fucking action film fighting vampires, that bloody worked. And I could see Electra if they'd gone down that route, it could have worked in the same way. Similar time, maybe late nineties, early two thousands. But like, like now, does it? F- I don't. I don't think it quite stands on its own the way something like Deadpool does. You know. So yeah, I don't think we're going to see this. Hmm. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling old films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic, but every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. This month we discuss how a classic adventure story was updated for the 1990s audience with catastrophic results. The remake Hate Watch for episode 34 is the 1993 version of The Three Musketeers. So, for, j- just to add, we're going to have a little treat at the end. We're not going to spend too long on this because we'd like to do a remake restoration where we where we provide some balance in the universe. Um, so, the first thing to say is, this isn't a case of the definitive story of this film having been made and no one should ever attempt it again. The Three Musketeers is kind of a timeless story that people are going to keep coming back to and that's okay. There's been successful adaptations which are good examples of like filmmaking of their era. There's a really good version of this in the 40s. There's a version I love from the 70s. And there's no reason not to do a new version of this story. It just has to be good. Yeah? Um, so it's not that. It's a question of how well they did this film. So, James... What's your history of the Three Musketeers? Is this something that you had any sort of contact with as a kid? The Musketeers story, any of that? I think I watched this when it was on like Sky Movies back in the day when I must have been about eight, and not really giving a shit mm. like about the story. I didn't, I didn't care. I didn't know what a musketeer was. I'm, you know, I was more interested in you know playing football. But yeah, um, as a as a story, uh, I don't know if. I don't know if it actually lends itself. It feels kind of very Robin Hoody, you know, yeah. I mean, that kind of old swashbuckling kind of tales. Well, um, this this version of the film is very Robin Hoody because it, oh, yeah. it couldn't be more of a rip off of Robin Hood Hints of Thieves if if it tried. We might yeah. want to do this bit now. It's got it's got the same composer doing the score as Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. All right, okay, well, there and you are. Almost and 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 the score is almost identical. It's got the same henchman from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Michael Wincott in this. It's got a theme song by Brian Adams. It's got Cardinal Richelieu standing in for the Sheriff of Nottingham, and Tim Curry is basically channeling Alan, Alan Rickman. So, is it a bit like Robin Hood? Well, that's on fucking purpose the way the guys did this film because this film came out in 1993, two years 
after Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves was like the biggest fucking movie, you know. So that is deliberate. I don't think the original story is as Robin Hoody, but it is a bit of a swashbuckling tale. So, do you, I mean, do you think there's room in, in the modern era for like a swashbuckling type film? I don't really know, to be honest. Because they have done more recent versions. There's a 2011 version of this directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Bafflingly, the guy who does like all of those Resident Evil films, he did it with Mila Jovovich's Milady de Winter, which I'm not even going to bother with. It's got some good actors in like, Ang- like, uh, like uh, Angus McFadgin, but or Matthew McFadgin, sorry. Um, there was a TV series, The Musketeers, and they're doing a new version, a French version, with um, uh, Eva Green uh, in it as, as Milady de Winter, and Vincent Cassel as one of the Musketeers. Uh, and they're doing that in two parts. That's coming out this year. So people are still doing this story. I mean, when I was a kid, The Musketeers was like a popular story. It was like a, a good old-fashioned sword-fighting adventure story. And I loved the 1973 and 74 versions, so they did the story as two films. Um, the 1948 Gene Kelly version in the 48, it, it, from 48 is really good. Um, both those films are very off their time. So it's not like saying you, you can't make a new movie. It's just a question of whether they did this. Oddly enough, one of the most popular versions of The Three Musketeers was a cartoon in the 80s for kids called Dog Tanyon and the Three Muskerhounds. Oh, fuck off, man. Which, which hilariously, that was my, my wife was a big fan of that. And she's watching me watching The Musketeers. And she's doing it. And she's going, oh, so they're not dogs then? I went, no, they're not dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Carl Mauricio? Yeah, he doesn't look like the guy from Dog Tanyon. He says, no, no, no. He's not a fucking Spaniel anymore. And she's like singing the theme tune from the cartoon channel going, babe, seriously, it's not the, it's not Dog Tanyon. Trust me, it's a different thing. Um, But what, I mean, rewatching it, what did you think? Yeah, it's shit. I just, it's a bizarre casting, especially Charlie Sheen as one of your musketeers. I mean, it's so, it's so weird. I mean, Tim Curry as... Carl Richley the villain. I mean, they've made a mistake in that Carl Richley is now nothing other than a cartoon bad guy, just like Alan Rickman, the Sheriff of Nottingham, where he's not like that in the stories. He's like a, he's like a, a, a political player in the original story. He's like he's never going to get his hands dirty. He's never going to get caught. He's behind, he's behind the scenes, and you can't ever quite take him down. But you can foil his plans. Do you know what I mean? And he's just a cartoon in this. But then you look at the. Um, uh, the people playing the uh, the Musketeers, Chris O'Donnell, fucking world's blandest man, Jesus Christ. Um, Kiefer Sutherland as Athos, Charlie Sheen as Aramis, and Oliver Platt as Porthos. Oliver Platt could probably, in a better film, have pulled off the character, but the rest of the other three are like, no, man, they're not Musketeers. They're not in a million fucking years. Um, I don't think the American accents work. That can fuck off. Um but it's just, it's also fundamentally like really poor. It's like a, um, it's like a Simpsons parody of how Hollywood like ruins good stories and turns it into like just cl- a cliche trope. It's like you've got lines like "I want those musketeers, not excuses." Do you know what I mean? It's like the Gascony is actually in the southwest of France, but like it's just on the fucking outskirts of Paris and this thing. It's just they take the story and go, "We're just going to give it all these plots." You killed my father. Um, you know, kill them all. It's like fucking hell. The whole thing is just—it's—it's it's an object lesson in how to take an interesting, interesting story and make it fucking shit. Um, I can only assume the person writing the dialogue for this movie had recently suffered a head injury because it's appalling. Um, <laughs> I think 
Rebecca de Mornay as Milady de Winter, that could have worked. But again, they just reduce her down to practically nothing. In fact, all the female characters are reduced down to kind of a shadow of what was in the original. I think the love interest for D'Artagnan is only in two scenes. The Queen of France is like barely there as well. So basically, you're relying on Keith of Sutherland and fucking Charlie Sheen carrying a, a, a period fencing swashbuckling movie set in France. And I, they're just not successful. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, to give you an idea of the, the, the quality of filmmaking you're talking about here, Charlie Sheen missed the fencing and riding lessons that everyone else took before making the film because he was finishing Hot Shots Part 2. So he didn't know how to ride a horse and he didn't know how to use a sword, but he just fucking rocked up anyway, which explains why he looks like a monkey with a lightsaber in all of his scenes. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to be slavishly faithful to the original, but this is what happens when you remove everything that made the original thing work and just make it into just... Again, they just tried to do Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and replace the Merry Men with Musketeers. That's literally what they've done. Um, nice. It's odd because th this is the 90s wasn't a great time to try and do this kind of stuff either because the mid-90s was just this kind of black hole. They tried to do historical adventure stories and had no feel for it. Have you heard of a film called First Night? Why do I feel like I have heard of that? I've probably mentioned it to you before. It came out in 1995. It's got Sean Connery as King Arthur and Richard Gere as Sir Lancelot. <laughs> oh, fuck. Oh. And it actually manages to be better than that, like, summary suggests, but it still doesn't work and it's still not very good. That one of the reviews of the film said that Richard Gere does his best, but he's about as medieval as a roller disco. And and that's just everything. Richard Gere just does not work in like a medieval storyline. And this is similar. I mean, Kiefer Sutherland and Charlie Sheen, just no. Um, they got their mojo back a little bit with the Antonio, Antonio Banderas Zorro, but this was not a good time to try and do adventure stories at all. And this is just like, the people doing it had no feel for the material, no feel for historical adventure stories, and were just trying to remake another film. Like, and not... The Musketeers. They were just trying to trying to make a bit of that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves money, which is why this doesn't work very well. So, not a success, I would say. No, I wouldn't. It was boring. It was shit. <laughs> but without without remaining running time, I wanted to do a redo. Now, this was my suggestion, but I think we've mentioned this before about this is a film that could have been good and and and, and didn't live up to the, to its promise. The the film we'd like to do a remake restoration of the film that we'd redo to make it better is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So, yes. so what did you, what did you think of the actual film of *Leaving Extraordinary Gentleman* that, that got made? I actually quite like it. I don't think it's that shit. Like the reviews it got were, I think, were quite unfair. I still, I think it's, I think it's okay. I've I've got a soft spot for the film, um, partly because I do think it's a terrific idea, and I do think I like Sean Connery as uh, as Alan Quatermain, and it does have some of what would have worked in in the original story so i do I, i've re i've probably rewatched it more than a, a film this flawed probably otherwise would be because there is something about the side i do like to go back to it and i think that i think that shows you why the underlying idea for the story is really sound and really deserves to get made properly do you know what i mean yeah what do you think what do you think is wrong with what they did with this version of the film I think they focus too much on Tom Sawyer wanting to fuck that vampire. Yeah, and Tom Sawyer's um, not not Tom Sawyer's not even in the original graphic novel. No, well that's even worse then. Because they said, "Oh, there's no American characters. We've got to introduce an American character and a young character for the youth American audience." That's fundamental 
problem there is and Dorian Gray's not in the original either except as a his portrait is on the wall as a as a, a as a as a, a, a former member of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen who've been around a long time but he's never actually in any of the storylines so they took two characters one who isn't really in the story and one who isn't in it at all and put them in it rather than use actual characters from the original graphic novels they left out some characters that have been really good to use I think that's I think yeah. that's I think that's mistake number one. Uh, Mina Hark is not a vampire in in the uh, in the original story either. She's just a really good spy. Would you did you like her as a vampire? Do you think that was good to have like a vampire fighting for good, even though she's um, even though she's obviously potentially dangerous? Yeah, I thought she was actually a good character. I thought having her as a vampire added an interesting kind of dynamic. But the introductions of Tom Sawyer and. Um, Dorian Gray didn't really contribute much because Dorian Gray didn't do anything and Tom Sawyer just used a gun. Yeah. So if you're going to introduce these characters, they need to do something like Dog's Check on Mr. Hyde. That's an interesting character because if he becomes uh, Mr. Hyde, then we're all in fucking, like, in trouble. The thing I liked best, I mean, apart, I think, I do like Alan Quatermain, I do like Sean Connery's Alan Quatermain, but apart from that, the thing I liked best, I liked seeing Captain Nemo. I thought I enjoyed Captain Nemo in this. Um... Especially because that's the only time I think Captain Nemo is actually being portrayed as Indian, which is what he was always meant to be in the in the original story. Um, in in Jules Verne's original story, he's meant to be Indian. Um, so I like that, and I like that that stuff. But I tell you, I tell you what I think is is wrong with him. First of all, it's it's dripping with CGI, some of which is quite poor. The, the CGI to render the Mister Hyde character is really quite bad. Um, the director isn't very good. He seems to direct the whole thing at 150 miles an hour. It's like he's got ADHD. The whole thing is just bang, 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 bang. He doesn't do anything to build that kind of cool steampunk atmosphere that I think would have worked better. Um, you also have a problem that they didn't have... Well, they had a fair bit of money. I think the total budget for this film was $80 million, 17 million of which went to um, pay Sean Connery his fee to be in the film. 17 million just to be in the film that wasn't like a package based on profits or anything the the story goes that Sean Connery turned down the chance to play Gandalf in Lord of the Rings because he didn't understand the story so he turned it down so he could have been Gandalf instead of Ian McKellen that would have been shit though but he would have made a lot of money from it basically this is true and he turned down the chance to be Lawrence Fishburne's character in The Matrix because again, he was shown the script and didn't get it, and kind of threw it back and said, "I don't know what the fuck this is. I don't. I don't want to do it." <laughs> and in the intervening period, Lord of the Rings is a massive hit. The Matrix is a massive hit. Sean Connery feels like he's missed the boat now because he's missed out on Lord of the Rings and the Matrix. So basically, the next thing that hits his desk uh, is is this, and it is a promising idea. I'm going to play Alan Quatermain. It's like a, a series of like superheroes from the Victorian era. I've not seen, and he, and he didn't quite get this story either. But he said, I've, "It's almost like he said he's he's missed out on two promising things. He can't miss out, so he goes for it and does it." And he's kind of, I don't know, if he'd had more feel for the material himself, he might have been because when he did a couple of things like The Rock and other things, he was quite influential on the on the, on the film on the director. He made them do a rewrite of the script for The Rock and made it a better movie. Whereas this, he doesn't really fucking get it. Bless him, he's like 70 when he's making this film. He doesn't fucking get graphic novels. So he's just there getting paid a lot of money. They do not have money for the other actors. So the guy playing Tom Sawyer is off American telly. The actress playing uh, Mina Harker, I think her name's 
Peter something. Um, she's she's off TV. She's all right, but she's not. I don't think she's a big screen presence. I don't think Stuart Townsend is doing great. I don't think he's very good at all. Um, so they've kind of skimped on the rest of the quality of the cast. The guy playing the Invisible Man is you've seen him in other stuff, but he's not particularly strong. And he's 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 not a Cockney in real life, but he's doing this kind of dodgy Cockney accent in this. Jason Fleming is Mr. Hyde. So I don't think they had the best actors to go to to work with Sean Connery. And I don't think they had the money. Some of that CGI looks quite iffy. I mean, did you think the CGI was all right in this or uh, the CGI is definitely iffy, but if they'd not blown all the fucking budget on Sean Connery, then they might have got somewhere with it. Yeah. I think they just there's so many things that just take you out of the film where um Captain Nemo's got like a really fast car and it's eighteen ninety nine and hardly anyone's seen a car and then yet later Tom Sawyer jumps behind the wheel and says, Get in and, and embarks in a car chase through Venice. It's just like, come on, have some fucking feel for the material. Do you know what I mean? And I think I still like it. I still like the idea, but mm-hmm. I can, you can see how it could have been so much better. How would how would you do this to make this better? I mean, secure the funding to actually make the film because fifty million is not enough to make this film. Um, are you TV series or film right now? If you're doing it now, what are you what are you doing it? I think you could have get away with making this a film, to be honest. I don't think yeah. there's too much in it that means you can't. Yeah, you could you could make a franchise with it. You could. You don't have to make a, a TV show either. Um, yeah, I think it, as a story actually lends itself to being quite a good film, like a film story. Um, but in terms of casting it, it's quite hard because Sean Connery was really the right choice for Alan Quatermain. I don't know who could replace him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I don't mind. I I think if you'd done it at the time and just done it better, I think. Sean Connery's Alan Quartermain's a good choice. I think just generally slightly stronger actors to play the other characters. Um, the in the original graphic novel, they use some different ones. They use like the French detective who solves the murders on the Rue Morgue. Um, I think he's an interesting character. Could have used him. They used Orlando, who is like a uh, Tilda Swinton played him in a movie. He's like a uh, almost androgynous kind of sex changing immortal who has has powers and I thought that was really interesting I don't know how well that works in a blockbuster but I think there's more interesting characters from play to play with raffles the um, uh, the gentleman thief and stuff and I think they could have I think they jettisoned too much to make it into an action movie and I think they just needed to try a little bit harder to retain a little bit more of the style of the original do you know what I mean yeah. Um, t- t- tough question to answer, but steampunk, it's not often been commercially successful. Now, this was actually commercially successful, but critically, critically drops, and they're never doing it again. Is steampunk ever going to work on screen? Because I love steampunk, but I've yet to see it actually be a, a massive hit in the movies. Yeah, I don't actually think steampunk is the problem with this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's... Yeah, steampunk isn't the issue with why this film doesn't work or why it's bad. It's it doesn't work because it's just a mess. It's edited badly, the action's poor, the CGI isn't great. It's that's why this film doesn't work. I still enjoy it because I have a soft spot for the idea of the story. I think it's a good story, but yeah, it doesn't work in that sense. So I don't think it's anything to do with steampunk. So so is it, so is it just as simple as this? Better actors around Sean Connery, better director. 
work a little bit harder on the script, retain more of the original kind of feel of the material, and and don't fill it full of shit CGI, and and and, and have a, have enough of a budget commit to to making it with the budget that's going to work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's, it's, it's just were... it's just generally redo it. It's not like it doesn't need a massive change of direction. It just needs to be kind of done with a bit more kind of original quality. Do you know what I mean? So are we saying if we were doing this back, if we were making it in 2001, how we would do it? Or are you saying if you were to make it in 2023, how would we do it? Well, That's th- the real question. So 2003, I think you've got to pull back a little bit on the CGI because it, it couldn't sustain all the stuff that it was trying to do. Don't make it like 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 it's being directed on fast forward by someone who's an absolute fucking hack. Get a decent director with a feel for the material and retain more of the original story. 2023... I don't know. Who do, you, who do you get to play Alan Quartermain in 2023? A guy who's somewhere between 60 and 70 playing that old campaigner. Who do, who do we get? If I was making it in 2023, I'm trying to think of an actor that could do a decent job of Quartermain. Whether it... I don't know, because... Clive Owen. Clive Owen would be good. Maybe a little bit on the young side. But just... I think there's a number of British actors like old and grizzled. I would give it 10 years and give it to Daniel Cree. Oh, there's a, I tell you what, yes. I tell you what, yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm a, well, hang on, he's 60, and he's 60 in like five years. So. Yeah, I mean, Sean Connery was 70 when he played Alan Quatermain, but I, I don't think he's meant to be 70 in the story. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, give it five years and let Daniel Craig do it. Yeah, I'd, Give I'd it Giggsy to the end of the season. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um... And then the rest of the cast, I kind of like the idea of her being a vampire. Um, and then you've got uh, hundreds of talented young actors that do it. Florence Pugh would be a good shout. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't think it would be hard to cast it now. Um, you probably need someone who's a, a big name. You need some big name actors in it to, to, attract, the, uh, to attract the cast. Or, or you say now... You don't necessarily need a massive budget to like recreate period nowadays. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think may, maybe you just try and do it a little bit slightly more small scale, and uh, you know, cut your cloth a little bit on the uh, on the uh, CGI and stuff, and maybe that will uh, maybe that'll do it. But um, hmm. yeah, I don't even think it's not even. I think we're we're getting a little bit kind of scarred by the CGI from this film because. The budget for it wasn't enough. I think you actually need to make sure that you're spending enough on CGI to make sure that it looks good. Yeah. Because a fifty million budget, seventeen million went on Sean Connery. That leaves you thirty three million for the rest of the film. Yeah. And that just isn't enough for the film that you need to make. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think get enough, get a budget and get someone who can even if it's only a budget of like eighty million or a hundred million, just make sure that the person doing it knows how to work with that kind of budget and still make a Polish film. Yeah. And I couldn't tell you anyone, because that's obviously, you know, that's a miracle. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think it can be done better, um, and maybe one day they will. Liam Neeson. Oof. Okay, now that, that's the one you could do right now, and actually is a very good show. Yeah, I mean, he's actually, um, he's actually 70 now, but he kind of, he's still kicking ass, so I think you could just get away with it. I think Liam Neeson might be a shout. I know he's probably a bit too old for it, but I'd love to have Amitabh Bakan play Captain Nemo. Mm. Too yeah. old. Far too old. But you could probably pull it off. Yeah, you're Shurik Khan, if you want to really go for it. Yeah. Because he likes a blockbuster as well. 
you, I mean, fancy casting with like with like you know Indian actors, you could you could pick you know pick a number of people, but uh, yeah. All right, so do do we feel like we've done that justice? I mean, I hope yeah, I definitely. Hope, I, I hope the people at home are, are interested in that. Do check out *Leave Extraordinary Gentlemen*. I mean, if you read the graphic novels, they're worth they're definitely worth a read. They're they're very dark. I don't think you could bring all of that to like a, a main blockbuster. Some of it is pretty pretty you know very very dark. So it'd always be a bit watered down on screen. But you know, w- watch the movie. There's something in there that that film is kind of. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of I've just that films. I've been bitten by the bug by this film a little bit, and I do feel like there's a good movie in there somewhere. Oh, definitely. That's all for this month's double reel features. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host James Adamson. The music was "Mistake the Getaway" by Kevin McLeod. Deja Vu is currently streaming on Disney+. There are various online articles about Jim McBride's version of Electra Assassin, or you can read Frank Miller's original graphic novel. Jennifer Garner Electra film is also available, but we don't advise watching it. Tune in next week for the big conversation where we're going to talk about the best film directors working today. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.